Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. We bring you thought-provoking guests and topics every week to challenge your thinking about leadership. Our aim is to help you become the leader that you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project. I'm greatly honoured today to be joined by author and advisor Tim Duggan. He's the author of two groundbreaking books. The first one is called Cult Status, How to Build a Business That People Adore. And the second is called Killer Thinking, How to Convert Good Ideas into Brilliant Ones. And there's going to be many gems of wisdom and advice in here for leaders. Whether you're running a business or you're a leader of a team, you can use the principles that Tim is going to talk about today in how you lead your teams into great success. So without any further ado, Tim, please go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience and give us a flavor of your background and what led you to be an author and to write books in this genre that you're writing in today. Awesome. Well, first of all, thanks, Mick, for having me on this podcast. It's really wonderful to be able to chat to everyone and to talk about some of the ideas and concepts that I've discovered on my business journey and have wrote about in some of my books. Now, on my LinkedIn page, it currently says I am an author and advisor. And I think that's for want of a better term because actually there's lots of different things that I'm doing at the moment, but I'll explain how I got here. So I started in the mailroom of an advertising agency in the late 90s, early 2000s. For the readers, for the listeners who are old enough to remember what a mail room is. It's where mail literally got delivered in and there was some poor soul who would go around to the desk of every executive and literally put the mail onto their desk. And that was me, but I love that job because it got me an introduction into creativity, into how business worked, into marketing. And that was a really formative few years in my early 20s. I then really had this desire to write. Writing was something that I was always interested in. And so I got a job with Rolling Stone in my early 20s as one of their main writers on electronic dance music. And it kind of introduced me to this whole new world that opened up. And through that, I met a bunch of people who already had an electronic dance music website. And I decided to co-found a website with them, which was called Same Same, which was a national game that's been website because I'd come out a few years earlier and realized there was a gap in the market. Hugh, a long, sometimes tortured 15 years from there, that company evolved into a company called Junkie Media, where we published uh, our main hero website was called Junkie, which was, um, that's with two E's, by the way, which was a website for Australian millennials, the young people, because at the time I was a young person myself. And we published content, news, music, reviews, interviews, commentary, opinion for young Australians. And we built that company up into about 60 to 70 full-time staff. So it was this really interesting business, um, a lot of hard work. And that company was acquired by an ASX listed company in 2016. And I then had a couple of years of working with a bigger company that was a thousand staff. And that was really fascinating to kind of see how a big company operates because I'd only really ever operated in small to medium-sized businesses um, up until that point. And it was during that time that I realized I wanted to start sharing some of the learnings, the mistakes, the insights that I had built up over this 15 years of starting and building and, and, and selling a company. So I got up in early morning, normally about 4am till 6am, I would write for a couple of years. And that became the genesis of Cult Status, which is my first book, which was published in 2020, and all about how to build a really strong community around a business or project that you're doing. 
So the first thing I've got to say to you, you do not look old enough to remember what a mailroom <laughs> looks like, by the way. And, and for those that are in the audience, if you don't know what a mailroom is, ask your parents. They did exist at one point. Yeah. So a wonderful experience that you've had along there. I do want to get into cult status. That's the first one I want to uh, pack into. What inspired you to write that? It was a bunch of things. It was predominantly I could sense something happening in wider society that was this movement that was uh, starting to take hold. And a lot of this was fed in by research that we had been doing on the audience for almost a decade when I was at Chunky. We did one of the largest longitudinal studies on Australian youth that started off as kind of this interesting survey. And then every year we would go back and speak to similar audiences about what they were seeing, how they were feeling. And it was was in doing that, I started to notice some trends coming through. And I really felt like not many people were talking about these trends. And some of these trends were this real rise of conscious consumerism. So this real rise of millennials, a very powerful generation. Um, I often joke that I'm the world's oldest living millennial because I was born at the very, very start of the millennial generation. And so I had this really interesting viewpoint kind of looking across and having access to this data around this generation that was coming through that was thinking differently about business. And that was asking for more, was demanding more. And the reason why I wrote the book was because this generation in particular was starting to move into positions of power. So you're starting to get millennial heads of state, you're starting to get millennial CEOs. And once I started writing it, I realized it wasn't just for or about millennials. It was in fact an entire kind of movement that was taking place. And I just felt that I had to write something about it. Yeah, very good. So around this social conscious, and I see it as well, and you're right, I think it's already more than 50% of the workforce are millennials and all of the senior managers coming through, the next generation of CEOs, they're all going to be millennials. And I'm a Gen X, I'm at the trail end of Gen X, I guess, but their social conscience is there. What does that mean for companies and brands? How do they need to pivot? How do they need to embrace this world? It has huge implications for our world and hopefully I think going to be positive implications because it means that for the first time, there is this genuine desire for thinking about what a business does, how a business operates and you know, the effect that a business can have. And this is not just a, a marketing angle or a CSR, or a corporate social responsibility angle or a PR angle that businesses need to have. This is genuine interest in looking at the entire relationship around the business. And that I think is the biggest change that millennials are having at the moment. So I want to unpack that a little bit. How do we make sure it's not just green limousine, that's not just a PR stunt and it's not cause jacking. There's so many words I could use right now, a savior complex that greenwashing, it's, well, it's World Pride Month right now. And when I walk around Sydney, every single business has got rainbows on them. Is that marketing or is it values and beliefs? What is it? How do we tell the difference and what does a business need to do to make sure that they're doing it for the right reasons? I think the easiest thing to do in the world is change a logo, make it rainbow for world pride or make it green and put a tree inside it to show that you care about the environment. That doesn't cut it anymore. And I think that is a first step. And for world pride, for example, it's quite interesting. I was just in Sydney recently and I was amazed at how many rainbows there were. But I think the real proof will be in the pudding. So will these companies continue to support, to change policies, to have diversity and inclusion as a core part 
part of what they do when the last float finishes at Sydney World Pride. And same thing around greenwashing. If a company stands up and says, we're committed to sustainability, it's then up to everyone, the employees, the suppliers, the customers to hold them to account to that. So I, I don't, I think the days are gone when you can just say that you're into something and then not actually do it. And there's a real accountability now, but that accountability comes from us. It comes from us, from every single person who's involved with that company, making sure that they're not just greenwashing. And that's something I think that particularly, as I said, millennials are moving into positions of power. So they're moving into the C-suite. They might not be the CEOs just yet, but they might be heads of marketing. They might be heads of compliance. They might be head of PR. And they have this ability to be sitting around the table to hold people to account. Um, now, to answer your question, Mick, around how we do this and how we make sure it's not just greenwashing. The way that we do that is making sure that everyone is on board from the top down. So CEOs these days have to be committed to this if they're going to you know, want to be a part of it. And this is not just outsourcing it to someone else to be their problem. It's about CEOs having real committed change to do this. A great example of this is Unilever. So huge company, global company, hundreds of thousands of staff. Their CEO, the last two CEOs have come in and said, we are making sustainability purpose a huge focus of what we're doing. And we're not perfect, but we are slowly moving our behemoth of a company towards being closer to perfect than we currently are. So they're doing things like reducing single-use plastics. They've come out and said that any of their brands that don't have a purpose are probably not going to exist as brands in the Unilever stable within the next decade or so. So they're making these big statements and they are starting to make movements towards it. And as I said, the proof's really going to be in the pudding in this because it's not something that can happen overnight. It's something that will be long, sustainable, incremental change. So I'm hearing three things there, but Tim, I'd love to play it back to you and see what you think. So the first one I'm hearing is that actions speak louder than logos. The second one is accountability from the top down. And the third one is that that accountability doesn't stop at the four walls. It's the entire supply chain. So if you're a company that's saying that you believe in certain values, but then you're doing business with other companies that do not visibly abide by those values, that's just as bad. And you need to take those tough decisions. And the Unilever example is a perfect one because what I'm seeing there is they're taking short-term decisions that you would say from a direct business acumen point of view probably negatively impact the P&L, but it's because it's the right thing to do. And what we're seeing is a lot of brand loyalty built and the converse is actually happening. They're actually building more profitable businesses by being tough and being decisive about staying to their values and beliefs because they're attracting and retaining customers that believe in the things that they believe. So short-term pain for what turned out to be actually something that positively impacted their business. How's my reflection sit with you, Tim? They're wonderful summaries. You really nailed that. I think that's a really great summation of three of the ways in which anyone listening to that podcast or leaders can take some of these and turn them into actionable insights. Interestingly, reflecting on Unilever. So they, about 20 years ago or so, I might get the date wrong, acquired Ben and & Jerry's. And Ben & Jerry's was one of the first truly proper social movement companies founded by two hippies in San Francisco. And that kind of hippie ideology from Ben & 
Jerry has lived on. And there was a lot of talk at the time around this multinational coming in to buy this company with purpose, what was going to happen to it. And if anything, I actually think the foresight of Ben and Jerry and their whole company to realize that they can be a bit of a Trojan horse inside this company to show them how you can take some of these values and apply them. And that has taken 20 years and it will probably take another 20 or 30 years beyond that. But it's a really great example of a bigger company seeing something that it aspired to be in a smaller company, acquiring it in this case, and then taking those ideals and principles and really spending time figuring out how to translate that across the entire company. There's two things I love about the example you're bringing up, Tim. The first one is that normally happens in reverse. When a behemoth takes over a smaller company, quite often they actually do more damage than than good. And they buy it for value-adding purposes. They look to hat cost and unlock value and all kinds of things. And they can actually destroy the very reason why they were buying that company. And what the second part I love it is about it. It wasn't the materialistic aspects of the company that they liked. They liked the values. So therefore, what they protected when they bought them was the values. That was what they were buying. They realized that the value in the asset was, in fact, the values and beliefs. It wasn't the footprint that, you know, if you pull out any kind of memorandum of understanding for buying a company, it's full of things like, show me your geographic footprint. What is your installed base? What is your, you know, what is your cost basis? How aging is your employees? And what I'm hearing is that they bought a company because they believed in what they believed and then protected those values and beliefs. That's amazing. I love this story. Yeah, very much so. I mean, they also would have bought it because it is a great company that they were able to then scale up and make it a really successful company. But they've been able, they kept it separate and Mm. they allowed its values to flourish so much so that during US presidential elections, Ben and Jerry's were able to, you know, give donations to causes they believed in and things like that, that would be harder if it was part of the conglomerate and had probably had to apply by Unilever's global policies, things like that. Yeah, really cool, Tim. All right. So your subtitle of the book is how to build a business that people adore. The next question I want to ask you is what businesses do you adore? There are so many businesses I adore and I love that, especially during COVID, these businesses that were the businesses that I adore are ones that have this strong community around them and they've built the community because they have a strong purpose and that purpose aligns with my own purpose and what I care about. So I love companies that really look to do some good in the world, that look to have a good relationship with its customers, suppliers, everyone else. So a couple of companies that I love and I'll give you some examples, some international ones, some Australian ones. The Australian one that I love is GoTo Skincare, which is a company started by Zoe Foster Blake, the an amazing Australian entrepreneur who started a skincare brand that was kind of a no bullshit, fuss free, cut through all the noise, be really honest with its consumers. Uh, and she started this skincare brand basically out of her garage and out of her bedroom. And it's now turned into a really successful Australian skincare brand that she sold uh, 50% of it a couple of years ago at the peak of the market for about 90 million Australian dollars. And not that it's just about monetary success, but it's about the fact that she was able to kind of carve out this interesting space, which was a kind of your, your best friend who's going to tell you straight what these really simple products are that don't use nasty chemicals and been able to do that in a really fun and appealing way. I think she was able to marry really good quality products with a really accessible brand together. So I love GoTo and GoTo in fact has an, a, a male arm called Bro2, which is this kind of oh, funny no. um, interpretation. It's literally the <laughs> same products, but 
in blue Spiny. instead of pink. Okay. And I think it's, it's quite it's quite hilarious. They put a slightly different fragrance in some of them, but okay. they kind of they play up to the fact that it is the same product just in a blue packaging. Uh, but I find that quite hilarious. And so I, I use those products almost every day on my skin. Another one that I love is, and this is a, a, a big global company, Patagonia. The thought that has gone into building that company and the way in which it interacts with the environment and its staff and its shareholders is just phenomenal. The way that the founder of that was able to kind of reinvent what the point of the business was. So for him, the point of a business is to give back. He's given away 100% of the shares of his company to environmental causes and to things that he believes in. And that is quite amazing to build a multi-billion dollar company own, I believe he owns 100% of the shares and be able to build it into this theme that not only creates really good quality products, but also is all about helping the environment and sustainability. I think that's kind of a really amazing example there. Yeah, they're two examples where I can see exactly what you're talking about with the projection of values and beliefs and essentially congruence, that it's not marketing BS. It's they say what they believe in and then they act in congruence with those beliefs. So the two companies that I'm hearing there, Tim, for sure. Next question I have for you. So when you say build a business that people adore, what do you think is more important, that the employees adore the the business or that the consumers and customers adore the business? What a great question. I've never actually had that question before because putting people in there was really intentional. So it wasn't build a business that customers adore and it wasn't also build a business that your employees adore. People was intentional because it was meant to actually signify both sides of that coin. I think if you build a business where your employees are really into it, but the customers don't quite get it, or they think it's too much of a cult or they kind of misses the, the, the point and therefore revenue starts falling off a cliff, that's not going to be- benefit anyone in the long term. Employees might love it, but if there's no money coming in the door, it won't exist. And the other flip side of that is if you build a business that from the outside looks really sexy and fun and like a cool place to work, but inside it's toxic or the the staff that work there don't want to work there or it is any of those things, that is obviously not what you want to do. So I think the concept of people adore was really about putting those two buckets together. And the way that you build a business that people really adore is that you get really super clear on what it is that you stand for as a business, with your staff, with your suppliers, with your customers, and then you stand up proudly and you communicate that to everyone around you. And then if someone's walking past and they also have those same values, they believe in that same thing, they then have the ability to connect with you as a business. And that's where the adoration part comes from. Yeah. Now you, like I said before, you're attracting and retaining people that believe in the things that you believe, whether they're employees or they're customers, you're attracting and retaining people that believe in the things that you believe and you're building no like and trust. You connect around something, this common interest, and you can do all kinds of things when you build that kind of close connection like that. Yeah, that's wonderful, Tim. You speak about seven steps very briefly. What are the seven steps to build a business that people adore? Yeah, I'll, I'll explain it briefly because I could speak for about two hours on these seven steps. When I spent time with hundreds of business owners, I traveled the world. This was pre-COVID. Traveled the world speaking to business owners and went to San Francisco and to phone to London and down to Melbourne and all over the place. And once you started to speak to these people that had these built these really strong communities, I realized there's a bunch of things they all had in common. And that got distilled down into seven really simple steps. And so the seven steps 
without going into too much detail, the very first step is to think impact first. So before you do anything else, you really need to define what is the impact that you want to have if you're successful and introduce this concept called an impact statement, which I believe should be as popular as a mission statement in business documents. So instead of just saying what the mission is you want to do, go that step further and say, what is the impact that will happen if you do complete that mission? And that's called an impact statement. The second step is called question all the small things, which is about having that curiosity mindset and in really thinking through what are these small decisions, the detail that I can have in when I'm thinking about launching this business, thinking about refining what I do, that's going to have a large effect. And so questioning all the small things and really paying attention to those small things that have a big effect. The third one is called refine your superpower. And that one refers to what is it that you can do that is better than anyone else out there? What's your superpower? It's an idea that is, you know, well known in kind of thinking through your edge or your advantage. There's lots of different ways of describing this in business terms. But the idea of thinking about what it is that you can do slightly better than the person in the cubicle next to you. And how can you use that to your advantage? So really leaning into your difference as opposed to being scared of your difference. The fourth step is where we start moving into this cult status stage. So how do we actually build a real strong community? And that is called define your altar. So in defining your altar, you are looking around, looking at what your customers are already doing, how they're interacting with you and figuring out what is that place where everyone can come together and for want of a better term, worship at the altar of your company, your business, your product. Because when you get people together, ideally in a physical setting, but sometimes in a digital setting, there's a real power that happens. Something really special happens when you can do that. And if you can lean into that and define what your altar is, you can start creating a really strong community. The fifth step is called drop your bullshit. And that is where you need to really stop lying, stop over promising, stop all the kind of the grandiose things that tends to happen in business and just level with the customer and talk to them on the same level as though you're talking to one of your best friends. This idea of kind of dropping the bullshit and kind of really coming to the same level as your customer is a really important part of building a business with cult status. The sixth step is this concept called lead from the middle. And this is a really interesting one where traditionally there's ways of leading from the front where you tell everyone where you're going and then you make everyone follow you. There's also ideas like leading from behind, which is where you kind of stand back and kind of let, let everyone else go there and you watch them go there. But this idea of leading from the middle is that you essentially gather that your community, which might be your staff, your suppliers, your employees, your customers, you tell them where you want to go. You give them the direction, you give them the purpose, why they're going there, but then you let them work their way there and you go along with them, you support them, but you really lead from the middle. And then the final step out of all of these, I call strap yourself in because the entrepreneurial journey is very difficult. There's ups, there's downs, you give it a lot, you sometimes work too hard, you might get stressed, you might get burnt out, all of these things. And I think it's really important to acknowledge this journey is really freaking hard sometimes and you just need to strap yourself in for that journey. And I think if you are aware that it's going to be hard, if you speak to people that have done this already, if you surround yourself, if you make sure that you can build in timeouts, build in all of these tools that we have now to make work not so overwhelming, then the entire journey is going to be that much easier for you. And so that's the seven steps to building a business with cult status.
So I love all the seven steps, Tim, and I shouldn't have favourites, but I'm going to reflect back to you on the ones that really impacted me. The first one was starting with impact instead of a mission statement or or anything that starts with we're going to be the world's best at or anything like that. Think about what actually impact you're having on other human beings' lives and that can really resonate with people. It can resonate with the customers. It can also bring meaning and purpose to your staff if they understand that what they do has an impact on another human being's life. It then gives them meaning and impact in what they're doing. And they also can start understanding, well, what happens if we don't do this? What happens if we do more of this? If you can understand your impact, you're going a long way. So I absolutely love that. Love the bit about the superpowers and owning your superpowers and getting out there. We speak a lot about humility, which of course is important, but so is confidence and having confidence in your superpowers is cruel. Dropping the BS, love that. Why can't we just have normal conversations? That builds trust by by the way, if you have a normal conversation with your customer about what you're good at and very open about what your product does and doesn't do, it builds trust. So dropping the BS and I love this leading from the middle. And for me, what this is all about is being visionary and giving the vision of where we're heading and why we're going there around our why, around our impact, giving some boundaries of some left and right of arc, if you like, but then people support what they create. So if you then step back and allow the team to forge their own way of getting to that vision, they will do so with far more energy because they'll feel empowered, they'll feel energized, they'll feel enabled that they are part of this mission. They're not just some employee with a number. So they're my favorites. The whole seven-step process is wonderful. They were my biggest takeaways from what you were saying there. I was going to say, it's okay to have favorites. It's good to look through these seven steps and figure out which ones resonate with you. And I also obviously love all of them. But for me, the Think Impact First one is probably the most important one. So I think you can't really do the other six without that one. The other six are relatively interchangeable in terms of when they happen. And there doesn't need to be like step one, the step two, step three. But that first one around thinking the impact first. And it's really because it, it enters the human at the center of this. I think Sometimes in business, we think widgets, we think numbers, we think how many sales are we doing? We think what revenue target do I need to hit? What's the monetary value of this? And what is forgotten in all of that is that there's a human being behind all of that. And I think by thinking what your impact first, it forces you to get away from those widgets and think through to who is actually buying that widget, why are they buying it? And then what happens to them if they do? I think that's really important in business. Yeah. And what happens if they don't? What happens if the widget's not available or your service is not available? Right. So understanding the impact of it being there, understanding the impact of it not being there. Yeah. Really bring it to life for you. All right. So the question I want to ask you now, final question on cult status, and then we're going to go on to killer ideas. The book is how to build a business that people adore. Many of our listeners are not building businesses. They're building teams. They're team leaders. They might be heads of departments, head of engineering. They might be head of a nursing department, whatever the case may be. What if I say to you how to build a team that people adore. Would you use the same process? So really interestingly, when I published the book, it was aimed at entrepreneurs. It was aimed at people who wanted to kind of start a business. And it's one thing to write a book in the comfort of my house at 4am in the morning in the dark thinking who my audience is going to be. And then the really fascinating thing is that once a book is out into the world, it actually finds its own audience through like water finding its level. And I was really surprised when this book came out that I started to get lots of messages. I'm talking dozens of messages from people 
people working inside large companies. So people who worked at management consultants, people who worked at accounting firms, people who worked in for mechanic firms, for real estate agencies, for hairdressing companies, who all were seeing how they could apply these principles to their team or to their business from the inside. Instead of having to think, oh, I need to start a business in order to apply this. All of these principles, you can actually apply to your team, whether you are the CEO of the company, whether you are working in the mailroom, or whether you are managing a team of one person or a hundred people. So I think it's actually quite interesting that all of these principles from thinking through the impact that you want your team to have, having that curiosity mindset, questioning small things, refining the superpower of yourself and of your teammates, defining the altar of where your team comes together and how you show up for that and things like rituals and language, you can just as importantly do as a team. Communicating really clearly by dropping the bullshit, leading from the middle in particular is something that you don't need to be a startup CEO in order to do that. Every manager needs to do that. And then strapping yourself in because every journey, every team is different. So I was really pleasantly surprised at how these principles were can be broadly applied to a team. Yeah, that's why I asked the question, Tim. I was reading it going for a business, 1,000%, for a team, 1,000%. So the uh, connection there for sure. All right, let's go to killer ideas. So killer ideas is about how you convert a good idea into a brilliant one. Now, I want to start with killer is actually an acronym. So tell us what killer means. It is. I think when most people pick up killer thinking, they think that I've heard about killer ideas before. Yes. You know, this is, you didn't come up with something new here. You know, what are you going to talk about? And I love this. I love acronyms throughout my entire career. I really love them because what I try and do is take complex ideas and communicate them in simple ways. So I spend a lot of my time, probably too much of my time thinking through what's a really simple acronym that can take something that feels important and is several different ideas and tie them together so that people can remember it. So killer is an acronym, or in fact, it's a term that I gave a talk once and I said killer was an acronym. And someone put their hand up and they said, it's actually a backronym, which is where you take a word and you backfill it with meaning. But a backronym was quite an interesting <laughs> concept that I've never heard of. So killer thinking is a backronym, which is a new term, new to me and probably new to all of your listeners, which actually stands for the thinking behind this book was I set out to find what were the best ideas in the world. And that is a huge topic, a really great question to be tasked with and to think through. And I wrote most of this one when I had left full-time work. So I left Junkie Media after 15 years. And it was in the hands of a company. My co-founder stayed there. And we, my husband and I were meant to move to Europe to be closer to his family in Scotland for a couple of years. But instead, the borders were closed. Everything was shut. It was that period in 2020. So instead, we jumped into a camper van and we explored Australia for six months in the back of a camper van. And I wrote a lot of this book as we were hiking and walking around and thinking. And so I Zoomed in conversations and calls with people all over the world trying to find out where the best ideas in the world were. And what I discovered was that they all have a couple of things in common. And then that spells out the word killer. So killer is that the best ideas in the world have all of this in common. They are kind, they are impactful, they are loved, they are lasting, they are easy, and they are repeatable. So to explain each of those in quick detail, the first one is kind. So the best ideas in the world are thoughtful. They take into account the world around them. And this is where there's a bit of crossover with cult status. If cult status is how to turn an idea into something amazing or have those ideas in your teams, killer thinking is about how to come up with that idea and really kind of take it on that journey from good to great to killer. So the best ideas are kind. They respect the environment. They respect the team around them. They respect the suppliers, all the things that cult status talks about. The I is impactful. So they have big impact. They might have a deep impact with a small number of people or a large impact with lots of people. Some of these 
these ideas I talk about in Killer Thinking affect millions of people and others might just affect one company or one hospital or one area. The next one is that they are loved. So they're ideas that not just, oh yeah, that's a nice idea. They're ideas that people really love. And when you love an idea, you have a deep connection with it and you're willing to spread it on to other people. The next one is that they are lasting and lasting means that they have something in them that goes beyond just an idea that sparks and is kind of cute and then falls away. Lasting means it generally connects with something deeper and that kind of gives it a bit of lasting impact. The next one is it's easy. Easy is probably the hardest thing to do when it comes to ideas. It's very easy to come up with an idea that's complicated and it's very hard to make an idea really simple. So easy is all about how can you really simplify it down and down to make it something that the real test of a killer idea is how can you describe it in a sentence that makes you then want to pass it on to somebody else? Because that's how ideas spread is that they're really, really simple ideas. And the final R in killer is it's repeatable. So it's an idea that has legs. It's an idea that can be repeated in different cultures, can be repeated in different countries and really all those things intertwine to make an idea killer. I've got a bunch of examples we can talk through to bring some of those to life as well. Yeah, let's, I was going to throw some at you, but if you've got some ready, let's go with that. Yeah. So one idea that I think is one of the world's killer ideas. And when I was thinking through killer ideas, I was thinking through business ideas. I was thinking through ideas. Some of them generated billions of dollars and some of them were social movements because I think they're some of the best ideas. And I think one example of a killer idea, which actually originated here in Australia, in Melbourne, and it's since blown up all over the world is Movember. So the idea that very, very simple idea, you grow a mustache in November, it becomes Movember. This idea, for this one, I went down to Melbourne and said, down with one of the co-founders who talked to me about how he and a friend came up with this idea while downing a bunch of beers in a pub in Fitzroy in Melbourne. And he was just talking about the simplicity of the idea was evident from day one. It was repeatable. It was kind. It raised money for prostate cancer and men's health. Hugely impactful. They've raised $1.7 billion around the world for these charities. It's loved. It's something that people really love doing. All of the things that make up Killer are really evident in November. I think it's just a really simple, great idea of that. That's a great example. And I love that you brought up a social one instead of just a product one. So one of the things I was going to throw to you is this is more than just products. This is about social movements. It's even about concepts. We could even throw things like, I don't mean to be provocative here for a second. We could even throw democracy and go, is democracy a good idea? Is it kind? Is it impactful? Is it loved? Is it lasting? Is it easy? Is it repeatable? Maybe not easy sometimes, but yeah, you, know, you could throw anything at this acronym and give it a good test. So unscripted here, I'm going to throw some at you and see how there we go. Chat GPT. Is it too early to tell or, or is this a killer idea or... I think it is a killer idea and it will probably will kill a lot of jobs and kill a lot of things. But I don't know if it's a killer idea in the same way that uh, the kind, impactful, love, lasting, easy and repeatable. Mm. So let me explain that. I think it is an amazing technology. I think it's going to change a lot of things. But I think things like the kindness of it, things like the obviously it's going to be repeatable, it's going to be impactful, the loved aspect of it, all of that is yet to be determined. And that probably depends on how you roll it out. If you 
you have good guardrails on it and if it you know can be used to benefit humanity in some way. I'm a huge fan proponent of, of what I think AI is going to do. However, I think what we don't know yet is what is the impact of that going to be on us. And I've just written my third book about the future of work. I just handed my first draft in. It doesn't come out till March 2024, but I've just handed the first draft of that in. And I really look at AI in detail in that. And one of the things that I'm pushing for is that when artificial intelligence starts eliminating a bunch of work that we would normally do and a bunch of tasks, we really need to think deeply about what we're going to replace that with. Because if the answer is we're just going to replace that with more work and replace it with more tasks to do, that's not going to benefit anybody. But if we can replace that with something else, and that could be more free time, it could be recreation, it could be hobbies, it could be spending time with other people. I think that's when AI is going to really benefit us. But if we just use it to replace it with more things, it's going to be extremely tiring and extremely hard for us to deal with. Very, very cool, Tim. Let me share a view here. I'm writing an article on this at the moment, actually. I don't know when I'll publish it, but I want to push for us to replace the word artificial intelligence with augmented intelligence so that we start thinking about it's actually the application of AI that's more important than the AI itself. How are we going to use it? So, for example, there's cases where AI and massive data machine learning is helping people to diagnose and cure types of cancer. Is that kind, impactful, loved, lasting, easy, repeatable? I certainly hope so. People are starting to use AI to manipulate stock markets for profit. Does that fit those categories? No, right? So AI itself is not killer, but AI when put into application can be killer or cannot be killer. How does that sit with you? Yeah, I totally agree. I think AI is a tool that humans can use. And like any tool, it has the ability to be used and to be abused. Think through mobile technology, think through the internet. So whilst the tech, it's not the technology itself, it's how it is applied. And I yeah. totally agree with you. I think some of the uses of how artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence or as open AI now referring to it, AGI, artificial general intelligence seems to be the, the new term that they're using. It will change so many industries. It will change every everyone's work who's listening to this right now. But the question of how it will change it is up to us. So I think we'll be the ones that will be applying that. And hopefully some of those changes can be for the good. Like in the medical world, the fact that AI can augment and help doctors and people to diagnose things and soon an app to be able to do it without having to go and have an extra strain on the medical system. That is potentially a really amazing, kind, impactful, loved, lasting, easy and repeatable idea. If it's an extension of the human condition, not a replacement of the human condition, it needs to be explored for sure. And what I think we do have to be careful with is both malicious consequences and unintended consequences. So I'm going to, I'll go out on a limb here. Some people may not agree with me on this one. What we're seeing in the world with social media and algorithmic bias, I feel like that was an unintended consequence. This echo chambers that we're finding people getting themselves stuck in. I don't think the likes of Facebook and Google, etc. intended that. I might be proven wrong one day, but it does mean that we need ethical treatment of any new killer idea. We need to look at both malicious and unintended consequences of that, that new idea as it comes through. How does that sit with your team? 
I think that's a really good point. I think anything that gets that large in terms of a business that successful reaches that many people is going to have unintended consequences. When Mark Zuckerberg was sitting in his dorm room thinking up the idea of, of Facebook, I don't think he was thinking about billions of people around the world using it to overthrow governments and sow false information. I think he was genuinely at the time, and maybe this is you know some kudos that we're both giving to him and to people, other people that found social media. I think it was genuinely founded with good intentions at the start. The problem is when any technology gets too big and too unwieldy and just like anything, parts of humanity wonderful and other parts are terrible. And I think it starts to reflect who we are. And I think AI is that perfect example where you have some companies, open AI, built out of a nonprofit, have a real bunch of altruistic intentions. That is the start. When it's starting to be used by billions of people and there's built-in biases and it reinforces some of the best and worst of human behavior, that's when it just starts to reflect who we are as humanity and who we are as a very complicated, you know, twisted, intense society. And I think that just gets reflected back in our technologies that we use. Yeah, spot on, Tim. I love that so much. I'm going to put one more to you on purpose. This one's a little bit provocative as well. Spotify, Netflix. Let's go with Spotify. Spotify, killer, killer idea or not? So I think once again, I think the intention behind these companies is to have a killer idea. So the idea of kind of democratizing, giving anyone access to content, whether that be music, whether that be streaming, the intention behind it is generally a killer idea. The execution itself, when it becomes larger, when it starts becoming monopolistic, when it starts dominating industries, that's when there's always a trade-off between it. And so Airbnb is another example. I think the intention behind Airbnb, wonderful intention, you know, try to open up people's spare rooms in the early days to be able to give people more income and give people access. And I basically, we basically live in Airbnbs and we travel the world. However, the unintended consequences of that, rising rents, locking people out of markets, people having 100 Airbnbs on there that sit empty and therefore the rent of the place next door goes up tenfold. Um, all those things are unintended consequences. Um, I think different CEOs and different companies manage that differently and some manage it well, some don't. I think an example of a company that manages it pretty well is Netflix. And this must be disclaimed by when I was at Junkie Media. We had an agency and we created all of the social content across Australia and New Zealand for Netflix for a couple of years. So I worked really closely with the Netflix, Netflix Australia team and saw how they were able to operate on the inside. And my insights were that the intentions and what that company is trying to do, particularly around diversity and genuine diversity. So examples are shows on Netflix don't get greenlit unless they can prove that the staff is diverse, the people writing it are diverse, the cast is diverse. And this genuine push for diversity, and it's something that you almost don't notice when you watch Netflix, but I challenge you when you're watching a Netflix show tonight or over the, over the weekend, look at the cast, look at the different cultures that are represented in almost every story, every movie they produce, every reality show. It's a real genuine diversity. It's kind of almost happening naturally, almost subversively so that we don't notice it. And that reflection of using their power as one of the largest streaming companies on on the planet to make sure that it reflects the audience who is buying their streaming services is actually pretty phenomenal to see. 
I'm really glad that you did that. And I'm now going to pay closer attention when I'm watching Netflix and see if I can observe that myself. That's really wonderful. And it comes back to what we're talking before about cult followings as well, that, you know, you're going, they're, they're living by their values and beliefs, which is wonderful. The reason why I brought up the Spotify one was on purpose, that sometimes the killer idea might be wonderful for one group of people. It might be kind and impactful for one group of people, but it might be at the detriment of another group of people. So it's it's pretty well publicized that some recording artists were hit pretty badly by Spotify. And yet the consumer, it's one of the most convenient things I've ever used in my life, right? So as a consumer, I personally benefited, but did it, was it at the detriment of other human beings? So we need to watch out that our killer idea isn't killer for a segment of the world and a exact opposite for another segment of the world. And there's actually an exercise in killer thinking. So I love, I'm a very practical person. I love kind of inspiring people, giving them stories and then giving them exercises so you can put it into practice. Not everyone loves doing that, but I love taking a book and writing in it and filling out worksheets and things like that. And there's this really great exercise that I introduced in killer thinking, which is called winners and losers. Really simple idea, which is when you come up with an idea, start writing a list out of who's going to win from that and who's going to lose. So in the case of if Spotify had done this at the start or if Airbnb had done it or if Facebook had done it, you might look at that and say, okay, who's going to win? So consumers are going to have access to music. The record labels are going to have another source of income because CD sales are going. Diversity of music tastes is going to, people are going to explore and really understand lots of different music be introduced to new artists. But then you start putting down the list of who's going to lose in this and you start looking at musicians are not going to get paid adequately based on number of views. Smaller musicians are going to get you know, make less money this than the large musicians because it's tailored towards listening habits. So the idea then is how you take an idea and make it really brilliant and make it really killer is how can you tweak that idea so that you start moving some of the people that are going to lose from an idea, move them into the winner column. So is there anything that you can do with your model? So Spotify's, for example, the way to do that would be to pay the artists more. Quite simply, if you're going to figure out how you can pay the artists equitably or figure out a different arrangement with them or some other type of profit sharing that was more equitable. If you can move people from the loser column into the winner column, that is how you kind of massage an idea. And as my book Killer Thinking explains, turn it from a good idea into a really brilliant one. I love this, Tim. And what I'm seeing here is a test that essentially moves beyond equality and makes sure that there's equity and to make sure that it's fair and reasonable and everyone gets access to the advantages of what this new idea is bringing. And it's not marginalizing a group of people even further than they might be already marginalized in the world. All right. Brilliant, Tim. Now, I'll say one more thing about killer thinking, and that is, and we won't go into this now because we've already bombarded the audience with so much content today. I encourage you to get a a copy of this. The thing I want to leave you with is this test. Test your idea against, is it kind? Is it impactful? Is it loved? Is it lasting? Is it easy? Is it repeatable? That's my big takeaway for today. And to think about its intended and unintended consequences. To think about malicious and once again, unintended consequences of, of what could happen with the idea that you're bringing to the world. In the book, there's then eight steps that you can go through. And as Tim was just describing, there's workbook uh, type approach there where you can really test your 
your idea and, and see whether it is equitable and whether it is indeed a killer idea and to take you through that killer thinking process. All right, Tim, thank you so much. So much great content today from all of the both your books. And I'm looking forward to your third book already, even though it's only in, in, in its first draft. I'd like to go to our rapid round now. What's the one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you were 20? Oh, there are so many things I wish I knew when I was 20. But I think the biggest lesson that I have learned over time is that bigger is not always better. I think when I was young, I would always thinking, I have one staff, I would love 10 staff, I would love 100 staff, wouldn't that be great? We've earned $100, I'd love to earn a million dollars, I'd love to earn $10 million. And it was something that I learned doing events in particular, I started putting on kind of small events in my early 20s. And I thought bigger and bigger was better until I ended up putting on the first, uh, one of the first dance parties at the Sydney Entertainment Centre, which was the venue where you know Elton John would perform and Beyonce and Madonna when they came to town. And I was 24 or 25 at the time and I lost about $80,000 in one night as a very young kid. And it taught me so much around one, how to pay back money slowly over time, but also just how to not always reach for the stars and try and go for what is bigger and better and actually just kind of stick to what you have. And I think of this now, uh, when I was running Junkie Media, we had 60 or 70 full-time staff. I now have a thing that I refer to as staff zero, which is like inbox zero when you get inbox down to none. Staff zero is I've had my staff down to none. And I really love the simplicity that comes with that. So yeah, so bigger is not always better. All right. I love it. All right. What's your favorite book? So many favorite books. I think I'm going to choose one that I've been reflecting on recently that had a really big impact on me. And most people might not know this book. It was published in about 2008, 2009. Uh, it's by an author called John Nash. And it's called Enough. And Enough was this book that ran through at the time the overwhelm that we're starting to feel and talked about enough work, enough money, enough information, enough noise, all these different chapters on how to be content with having enough in all these spaces and introduced me and opened up my eyes to a bunch of concepts, which I'm now 15 years later exploring in my new book that comes out next year. And so recently I reread that book and realized kind of how important it was for me at the time. Yeah, really nice, Tim. What's your favorite quote? My favorite quote, and I actually don't know who said it, I think it's been attributed to John Lennon, is quite simple and I use it all the time, mainly to myself when things aren't going very well, is the everything will be okay in the end and if it's not okay, it's not the end. And Mm. I love that quote because it kind of, I think, appeals to the optimist in me and kind of helps me get through some pretty shitty times knowing that everything is a wave, there's always ups and downs, everything will be okay in the end and if it's not okay, it's not the end. That's really powerful, Tim. And I, I really feel at the moment, there's a lot of people in the audience that might need to hear that today. So thank you for sharing that. Finally, how do people get in contact with you if they'd like to know more about your work? Yeah, thanks, Nick. I've really enjoyed this conversation. If it's sparked things inside people and they want to uh, read my books or contact me or hear more about it, the simplest way is through my website, which is timduggan.com.au. So that's T-I-M-D-U-G-G-A-N.com.au. And I respond to everyone who who reaches me, reaches out to me because I just love connecting with people that think in the same way. I think at the heart of what I do is I love building communities and fueling them with stories. And every time I write a book, it's really me saying, this is how I think about the world and other people read it and they say, ah, I also think about the world in that way. And I just love, therefore, meeting people and talking to people who have similar worldviews. So that's the easiest way of reaching me. 
Brilliant, Tim. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. I feel richer for this conversation. Very thought-provoking on both of your books. I look forward to your third book as well already. I know it won't be out until next year, but thank you so much for sharing your your wisdom and insights and uh, best of luck on your journey towards uh, Europe with your husband. And <laughs> thank you for your time on the show today. Thanks, Mick. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to The Leadership Project at mixbeers.com. A huge call out to Faris Sadek for his video editing of all of our video content and to all of the team at TLP. Joanne Goes On, Gerald Calibo and my amazing wife, Say Spears. I could not do this show without you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Leadership Project YouTube channel where we bring you interesting videos each and every week. And you can follow us on social, particularly on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. Now, in the meantime, please do take care, look out for each other and join us on this journey as we learn together and lead together.